Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, she's the daughter of an Arkansas sharecropper whose family fled to California after white farmers threatened to lynch her father. And she's put that life experience to good use in Sacramento, first in the state assembly, where she authored a bill to create the nation's first reparations task force, and now as California's secretary of state, overseeing elections and expanding access to the ballot. We'll be talking with Shirley Weber shortly. But first, Marisa, we had an election this week in San Francisco, a special election. Uh, one of it, many around one, the state. They seem to just be coming one after the other. We'll talk to the secretary about that. Uh, but uh, this was between Matt Haney and uh, David Campos, two Democrats. And in any other place in on the planet. The world, They're both yeah. progressive Democrats, but uh, in some way, uh, Matt Haney, who won overwhelmingly, was was sort of uh, seen as the more moderate of right. the two, uh, really dug into uh, housing and building more housing as a big part of his platform. And I guess one of the questions, A, I think it was such an overwhelming victory. A lot of us didn't see that coming, given how close they were in the general. But, you know, does this signal, do you think, any kind of a shift in San Francisco politics? You know, this comes a few weeks after the recall of three school board members, What do you think? I do. I mean, I think that there is a sense right now, um, you know, nationally, we see a lot of concern among Democrats about the sort of state of affairs and what uh, could happen in the midterms around Congress. But I do think you're seeing a little bit of a shift in even very liberal cities like San Francisco, frustration that maybe some of the progressive policies have not resulted in the promises that were made, right? And so take housing, which really was a core here. We saw the State Realtor Association back Matt Haney, among other business groups, with this almost $2 million independent expenditure. Um, And that really does beg the question, like, why are they backing this liberal Dem who is probably going to support things like eviction protections and other uh, policies that they oppose? But I think when you compare it to David Campos, who really uh, dug in around not just opposing some development, but also when he was a supervisor, putting a moratorium on development in his district, that is speaking to people. I think a lot of people feel that even if they still support progressive um you know, policies writ large that maybe not all of 
the nitty gritty has been working out. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, interestingly, we don't know the impact. Uh, we're probably not going to see any exit polling on that race. But uh, Campos also uh, had taken a leave as chief of staff uh, to Chesa Boudin, who's also on the ballot uh, with a recall election in June. That's the district attorney. The in district San attorney, and you know, part of that independent expenditure was very much spent tying Campos to uh, Boudin. Uh, we'll see how that plays out, and that'll be like the third of three elections. It may give us a little bit more indication of where the voters are in San Francisco in terms of the liberal progressive or, you know, liberal and very liberal, I guess you should say, <laughs> <Right>. split. Um, <laughs> let's, say, let's say this for our statewide audience. This is not going to change the balance of power in the state legislature one whit. No. Um, Haney is probably going to line up very similarly with David Chu, his predecessor up here. Um, and I think that, you know, to that in itself also tells you that sometimes this these types of, you know, spending and races have also to do with individual disagreements people have had with folks, with personality politics more than policy sometimes. Absolutely. And it is a small town and, uh, you know, they've both been around. But David Campos has actually been around longer than Matt Haney in some ways. And, you know, perhaps some of those interactions he's had with people over the years did not accrue to his advantage in this last election. You know, you mentioned uh, that there is a lot of dissatisfaction. People looking out on the streets, for example, in San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, they see homeless people. And uh, just this uh, today, Thursday, we got some updated revenue numbers from the state. It looks like there's about $17 billion more in revenue uh, than was uh, thought to be the case in January. Where, where there was already a $46 already a billion surplus, dollar surplus yeah. estimated. Yeah. And, and again, you know, so the state is going to have a fair amount of money to spend. And people, I think, are, are wondering, like, wh- why don't we see that, you know, yeah. on the streets? The governor, of course, is talking about care courts, uh, which would... Uh, compel more people who have mental illness, addiction problems into treatment. Counties are going to have to implement that ultimately. Uh, But, you know, whether or not the legislature is going to have the stomach for that uh, kind of uh, shift in policy, well, there's a lot of opposition from the ACLU and groups like that. Yeah, and we're hearing that there's some, um, you know, not as much support for this in the assembly. I think we'll have to see how things play out. You know, the governor will be coming out with his May revised budget, which is really where the rubber meets the road, both in terms of spending, but also a lot of these policies that are driven through the budget. And the other thing I think we're going to be really watching for, in addition to that debate over care courts, is how does this governor work with the legislature or not uh, to put some relief in the pockets of Californians? Um, Obviously, gas prices have soared, but inflation writ large is just a huge headache for all policymakers right now. Um, And with this, what, my math is terrible, but, you know, we're talking about a 60-something billion dollar potential surplus. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from this governor on the legislature to put that money back in Californians' pockets. Um, I think the interesting debate will be around, you know, whether that looks like just help for drivers or whether that's a bigger conversation about consumers and the impact we're all feeling, whether or not you're driving your car around. Well, and you know, if you're Joe Biden, you have to wonder just how much does that matter? I mean, all the money that the federal government put into people's pockets and it doesn't seem to be helping him when it comes to uh, his his polling. Maybe you got to do it a little closer to the election day. Maybe. We shall see. All right. We're going to take a quick break. I want to, before we do that, remind folks, we mentioned Chesa Boudin, the San Francisco DA. We, Maurice and I, you and I are going to be doing a live event with him uh, on May 3rd at San Francisco's uh, KQED headquarters. And if you're interested in joining us for that, you can get free tickets. Go to kqed.org slash live. All right, we're going to come back uh, in just a moment. We're going to be joined by California Secretary of State Shirley Weber. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're in Sacramento today. And we're joined by a woman who really has an extraordinary life story and career in public service. Shirley Weber served about a dozen years in the state assembly before Governor Gavin Newsom chose her to be Secretary of State, replacing Alex Padilla, who was appointed to Kamala Harris's U.S. Senate seat. It's she, a lot of musical it's chairs. All, you need a chart to follow all this. She's going to be on the ballot, in fact, in June uh, to hold on to her current job. She will be running for Secretary of State. Shirley Weber, welcome back to Political Breakdown. Well, it's good to be back with you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Great to be with you in person. And why don't we begin with a very basic question, which let's talk about the state of our democracy. You know, we are in a moment right now where the majority of Republicans think Joe Biden was not legitimately elected. Uh, We've seen ripples of that kind of uh, conversation here in California. What impact do you, you know, think that has on our democracy and the legitimacy of elections? Well, I think it, it you know, it's, it's, it's very concerning and uh, for me and for others, I think, as well, if you really pay attention to it, because you, you see folks who are attacking the democracy without real information. And as if the facts are just uh, don't confuse me with the facts, basically, uh, their own studies, their own work, their own committees come back and say, ah, there's no fraud, there's no deception. And yet people continue to promote that that big lie that's there uh, for their own personal gain. I'm not sure if that many people really believe the election was stolen, other than it's a convenient thing to hang their hat on and to make people uh, push forward. Because they themselves have done the study and have done the work and did not find any fraud, anything that would turn the election in a different direction. So I think, you know, if, if folks are really honest, and, and I think that's one of the things that bothers me most is when I talk to people who won't stand up who won't tell the truth, who won't fight back, who won't face the reality. It's, it is concerning because most democracies crumble based on lies. When you say yeah. talk to people, like who are you referring to? You know, in other words, if I have a, a legislator who refuses to tell the truth, uh, they, they will either just go silent. They won't, they won't say, yeah, you're right, uh, he, he won. And then if they say he won, they'll come back and, and, they, and won't answer the question again. We see that in Washington all the time. And, uh, and folks are not just standing up, even though they know that there's a big lie being told, they won't say anything. They won't come forward. They won't raise the issues in, uh, themselves, or they won't respond to the question. And so that, to me, is really uh, the beginning of the decline. You know, King said, it's not the, wor- the words of my friends, but the silence of my enemies that bothers me. And, uh, and, and, and those kinds of things that people just won't 
come forth and 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 make the, it known that this is not really true. Uh, we often hear it. I hear people ask me that question all the time, and I said, "Well, will you please send me the information uh, because we will investigate it and we will see if that's true." And I never get the information. Uh, it's stuff that they heard. And I said, okay, well, let's look at the facts. And then no one wants to look at the facts. Well, the way this is playing out across the nation is threatening of election officials, particularly yes. local officials on the front lines, um, false accusations. Um, and, and it's resulting in a lot of people just saying, I don't want to do this job. Right? It's not like exactly. you're getting paid a bunch of money to be an elections official. Can you talk about what you've experienced here in California around that? We have seen that. And, and, it, and if you just look at what the legislators are doing right now, they're authoring legislation to provide protection for people who work at the polls. You know, we have this safe at home program that's really for folks who are being assaulted and generally domestic violence. Now we're expanding it to include those who work at the polls. Wow. So not just head elections officials. Just not, not just the workers. head election officials. These are sometimes folks who are working at the polls, people who work in our offices, ROV, have been have been uh, uh, folks, they know where you live, kind of attitude. Uh, and oftentimes it's also in small areas where people do know where you live, where there's a connection between the folks who work in the polls and the ROV's office and the, na- and the, other, and the neighborhood. And so we're seeing folks who really feel very threatened and, and really who worked at the polls because it was a civic responsibility, kind of like my mom did forever, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now those people are being attacked and being threatened and being uh, forced to try to force them to do things and those kinds of things. And so a lot of them are saying, yeah, it's not worth it. So we're having, some places are having difficulty recruiting people to work at the polls. Yeah, and we saw similar things happen with public health officers yes. around the pandemic. And, you know, in some cases, longtime election officials have just decided, this isn't worth it. Retiring. Retiring. Yeah. One in six nationally, I saw one. That's yes. huge, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you've got in some places, you mentioned some of the smaller communities, rural counties, at least I know of at right. least one county where you've got someone who is, you know, of the stop the steal mentality, who mm-hmm. is running now for to be the top election and, official. And, and we've got a number of those individuals. And in fact, across the nation, you've got a lot of secretaries of states who are now where once their job wasn't as political as it was, now they're deciding that these are the offices we're going to run for. And they're running on the big lie. They're running on the stolen election of 2020. And so they're using that as their platform to move forward to, to basically run for the secretary of state's position. So those of us who are secretaries of state across the nation are very concerned about these places where folks, where they're running for those positions because those are crucial positions with regards to holding the line in, 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 in Georgia and other places and refusing to cooperate and, quote, find votes. These are folks who had some integrity and said, I'm not going to do that. Well, now you've got folks who are saying, you know, I, hey, I do that, you know, that, that want to run for secretary of state, who want to be in those positions. Uh, and you've got state government that's cooperating. You know, when you've got people writing laws that says, well, the, the legislature can overturn the vote of the people, that once the votes come in, the legislature can decide if those votes are valid or not. And they can substitute their vote for the vote of the people. And that's the kind of stuff that's coming forward that's, that to me is very frightening when you look at what that really means. That means that your vote no longer counts. It's really advisory. It is not action-oriented. It's not saying this is who we will have because of the number of votes. This is a suggestion of what we should do. And that is not what we should be doing in this democracy. Are there ways that you think that folks who do believe that our election system is secure can make the case? And I'm thinking about like a couple specific areas, right? Voter ID has been a huge uh, area of concern um, for 
conservatives in recent years, especially. Um, And then we also see this attack on vote by mail, even though historically in California, rural conservative voters actually relied on that more heavily. So what is the message you have to the public about the security of these systems? And like, why shouldn't we have a voter ID law, for example? Well, we do. You know, the thing is that we 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 make voting very transparent in California for those who really want to watch votes being counted. They can. I've been in several ROV offices where they have created a a lane that you can walk down and on each side is glass. And you can actually see people opening ballots and what they're doing. Many of them also have also got TV cameras up above. So you can see it up close without looking at the name and that kind of stuff. But so we try to make it very transparent. And those who will come and, and spend time there then discover that it's kind of boring and they leave because it's, <laughs> because it's you know, these folks are just working behind the mirrors doing the work that they, the uh, glass that they have to do. So we try to get that message out for those who are really interested, that they still have an opportunity, they have a right to watch the voting, to observe the counting of the ballots and those kinds of things. So so we do that even the, uh, at the end when we try to uh, secure the election and basically identify whether or not the system that we put in place to count so many ballots and so forth and so on, people can watch that. Uh, all of that is available. Uh, the issue of, of voter ID, um, uh, your, your ballot, you, you have to have ID to register, and then it is and then it is verified again to make sure that you're the person that's there. We've not had people who have um, uh, who have who've abused that, as, as people would say, for years. I mean, the system has been in place, and so we've not had folks who've done that. When we had some rec- we had some suggestions once that had happened. Our staff went to work and investigated with supposedly people between Arizona, I think, and, and California who voted in both in both states. Okay. Um, we we went in and, and they said it was thousands of people. I think in the end it boiled, boiled down to be two or three people. Right. And a lot of the uh, <laughs> some of them were Republicans. Other states and, were and they, they were Republicans, <laughs> and so and some of them were confused and and didn't know what they were doing and thought they had one was registered the chief one of staff for the president. All, all these kinds of folks have done that, but 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 you don't have enough to say ah the system is broken this is, yeah, because this is, uh, you know you've got twenty some odd million people voting in California. Uh, you know if if one person does something wrong, the system is broken because any system you get is going to have one person doing something. And so, and when we find it, we, we, we investigate it, we prosecute it, we do what we got to do. Yep. And so yep. it's, you know, it's pretty secure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Secretary of State Shirley Weber. And as the state's top election official, Dr. Weber is preparing to oversee the midterm elections on June 7th, where she herself will also be on the ballot. Uh, and uh, you get to vote for her. Or uh, Do you have any opposition? Of course. Everybody has opposition. <laughs> there's, there's seven people running for secretary of state. All right. So check it out uh, yeah. and see who she's running against. And uh, I want to ask you about, you know, we've cha- we are in the midst of changing the yes. way uh, people vote. In California, we've gone to the, the Voters uh, Choice Act was passed in 2016. A lot of counties have moved away from the local polling places, more toward these vote centers. Um, what are your thoughts about how that is working, the impact that it's had? And there's also that piece of legislation also requires a report within six months of, yes. of elections. And, and we haven't seen one yet from yeah, the it's... 2020 election. What's going on there? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, just in terms of the report, the report will probably be out next week. They've been gone through several changes with it, uh, trying to make sure that all the data that people had requested is actually in there. So they've added additional uh, uh, institutions like UCLA. I think Claremont is another place that basically had data that they needed. So it was much more complicated than the legislature says, produce a report in, in so many days. And so when we came in, we were in the midst of transition between my administration, the other administration, and changing who's doing the report 
forth and so forth and so on. So I've read the report and it, it should be out in the next week or so. And it has some good recommendations that's there. So so it, it'll be out uh, uh, next week. Well, can week you give early. us any, pre- I mean, do you think this is working? Well, do I think the system, the system is working? Yes. VCAs are working. I mean, what we've discovered with the VCAs is that, um, and, and that's the Voter Choice Act. And that's different than just vote by mail. Because with the Voter Choice Act, you, you not only vote by mail, you get the opportunity to do that, but you also get a voting center, which says you can vote in any any poll place in your county. You don't have to go back to your local one. You, there'll be a there'll be a vote center, so many vote centers, and you can go to any vote center to vote. You'd also have access to um, uh, uh, ballot boxes that are that are there, drop boxes, drop boxes that'll be there for uh, for eleven days, and you also get up to eleven days to vote. And so that changes the dynamics of of voting for for those who are in the vote VCA uh, counties. The other we do now give everyone a ballot. Okay, and uh, and and you know I, I, you know COVID was 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 disastrous, but I have to give a shout out to COVID because we had tried to get people to vote by mail, and I was on the on the election committee, and no one wanted to mandate that you had to get a ballot. You know, no, they didn't want everybody to get a ballot. It would be too expensive. It would be this. It would be that, you know, so forth and so on. When I came into office, the one thing I did is I met with every registrar voter and on on Zoom because we were in COVID and asked them what do they think about it. Every last one of them loved vote by mail. And these are people who would not have have gone with vote by mail. Every last one of them talked about how quick the system was, how it worked well, and how people turned out in great numbers right. because they got a chance to vote by mail. There was at least about- some data from PPIC and others that mm-hmm. uh, showed that uh, there was maybe a, this consolidation, you know, led to lower turnouts from Latino and black voters. It really did not. I mean, when you look at the numbers of voters that came out, we had over 80 some odd percent of voters that came out. Uh, Latinos and blacks have never really liked vote by mail, but at the same time, they had greater numbers than they've had in the past. Right. I think those analyses found that there was uh, the voting centers were were disproportionately sort of, you know, not being used as much by black and Latino voters and that vote by mail made up for that. So yes. there wasn't a gap. Can you just make the case like why the voting centers, especially with this huge surplus, why fewer polling places? Why And, and what is the ultimate goal? There? Well, the thing with the reason why we didn't have so many people going to vote centers is because they had already voted. Mm. You know, and that we found that to be in almost every community, that the day of the election, when people had the opportunity to go to the vote center, there may have been, even in my neighborhood, there was probably like, uh, I think my daughter, when she ran for office, might have been like 1,500 people who showed up the day of the election. They had already voted. They dropped their ballots in the box. They had either mailed it in. And so what happens is that the vote centers are not, it's not as popular uh, on the day of the election because there's very few ballots that come in. Now, we'll see what happens with the general election when we have everybody voting. But but keep in mind, most of the folks, when, I was, uh, when we were doing the recall and I was in San Francisco, the registrar voted in San Francisco said he had never seen so many ballots come in early as he did with the recall election. He said, we, he said, soon as people had a chance, they voted. Now, that may have been two because they only had two choices on right. the ballots. I didn't yeah. have to think a whole lot about it. But, but, but nonetheless, he was saying the, the ballots were coming in. And we were seeing record numbers of ballots coming in uh, at the very beginning of the election. And so people are using, the, you know, are, are voting by mail. Uh, whether we keep the centers or how we're going to do the centers is extremely important. We're assessing the centers right. in terms of that as to how many people actually show up at the centers. But also we know the fact that people do want a center. 
There's something that people like about going Physically, to vote. Yeah, sure. they want their sticker. They, well, they we, we send them a sticker <laughs> in the mail. They I get my sticker. sticker. You but even me, like I've always been a vote by mail voter because I never know when I'm going to be on election day, and I still like to walk my kids sometime and to drop the ballot because they yeah, can see the democratic process. It's, it's educational. You know? It's right, yeah. and 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 many people do that. They yeah. they will take their ballot to the poll that yeah. day to basically. It's not just because I'm a procrastinator. I swear. No, well, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, you know we have seen you mentioned the recall of Governor Newsom. We've got another recall in San. Francisco earlier this year and then again in June. There's a proliferation of these special elections, which... Uh, a lot of lawmakers stepping down. <laughs> a, lot oh, of re- got... a lot of open seats, including when you became Secretary yes. of State. Your daughter actually ran in a special election and won uh, to win your seat. But these things are expensive. And, yes. uh, you know, the counties often pick up the cost. That wasn't the case for the governor's recall. But in general, you know, are you open to maybe changing the process for filling an open seat when it comes in between elections? Well, you know, democracy is, is sometimes messy and expensive, okay? And if, if we gave the power to the governor to appoint every vacancy, you can imagine what the folks would say, depending on who's governor. And if whether it's your community or somebody else's, do you want your voice? And so I think there are things we do for efficiency and what have you. Vote by mail is an efficiency thing. But I'm not sure if people want the governor appointing everybody uh, that that decides to step down or that, you know, does something. He has authority to appoint right. some. But like the San Francisco one, the guy who won Haney is going to run again in June for yes. this seat. Like, is there an argument for leaving some of these open? If you are, you know, I try to put myself in the mind of the public. And I think people will, first of all, it's Haney won't cost us that much more money because we're going to have an election anyway. Right. So we've got our elections, our primaries and our generals. So what does it take me, a, a penny fourth of ink to put his name on the ballot? I don't think so. And those who want to run against him are preparing to do that. Right. Well, they may not have been prepared to do a special election. There's still a line of folks signed up to run. Right. So you know, we can't, I, I, I can say we could shortchange the democracy and, and, I, and, and, and everybody can money. rely yeah, upon right. me to tell them what to do. <laughs> but I think at some point, most folks want to make sure that they have their voice. And the communities they represent. Yeah. All right, I want to switch gears here. We mentioned that your daughter ran and won the seat you, you, you held in San Diego. You are Secretary of State. We also mentioned that you are the great-granddaughter of an enslaved man and your parents were sharecroppers, right? They fled right. Arkansas. So th- all of this history, I'm I'm wondering how it helped bring you to the reparations bill that you wrote that created this task force. Well, you know, I, I'm also a historian, and um, yeah, we haven't even mentioned your my, my career, my real career, my real career. But you know, everyone, there's something about when you've done something wrong that it's important that you try to make amends. And no group has been uh, as as aggrieved as African-Americans in this country having been taken from their homeland and brought here uh, and then set back and, 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 and have never had anyone not only apologize for what has happened, but, but provide any kind of, of reparations to, make, to help people grow. There was supposed to be reparations at the end of slavery. Right. There's supposed to have been 40 acres and a mule. And that land was taken and given to slaveholders. And they were paid for the slaves that they did that they had lost, quote unquote. And so as a result, uh, you know, they were paid twice for things that had done wrong. No one had ever given these folks anything. And then we'd had numerous laws that made it even more difficult uh, to buy land, to own property, to do those kinds of things that was essential. We've never had an, an effort to really look at the damage done. 
and the continuing damage. And we see it every day, but we write it off as something else. The fact that the wealth gap is enormous, mm-hmm. you know, that most of the folks don't own property to give to other, their, their kids or anybody. The wealth gap is enormous. The educational gap has been enormous. The community development gap is enormous. At some point, somebody has to stop and say, hey, mm-hmm. let's do this. The federal government was going to do it, but you know how crazy they are. I mean, they, they, we can't get, seem to get a lot of things through. Going in backwards in We're some going ways. backwards in most cases. <laughs> and so they've been trying to get a reparations bill for four years. Yeah. Well, one of the big questions, of course, is who will be eligible for reparations? Right. And uh, you were quoted as saying there will be many black people who do not deserve reparations, exactly. but there will be many whose lineage clearly says very strongly that they deserve to have reparations. Why did you feel so strongly about that? I felt strongly about that because, you know, having been the, been the great, great granddaughter of a slave, And knowing what that meant in terms of economic development, not only economic, but psychological development. The fact that when you are, when you were, my grandfather was just so um, uh, afraid all of his life Mm -hmm. that something would happen to him and his kids, that he would not speak up. He was so afraid because he saw the Elaine, Arkansas riot where they just went through the fields and slaughtered people in Arkansas. And so he lived through that. He was an adult and his kids. And so so to look at the psychological impact that slavery had on those who were here. And I compare myself oftentimes to those who've come here from the continent of Africa, from the Caribbean. Their mindset is so different. I even look at, like I told people, I look at Obama, who's, who was not a descendant of slaves. His father was a Nigerian, and his view of the world, that he could conquer anything along with his white mother, was so different than someone who has been raised in that environment. Can I just ask you, we only have like mm-hmm. 30 okay. seconds, but someone like Obama is still, though, suffering yeah. many of the economic and other hardships as well. so Not him particularly. Not well, him particularly. So maybe that's growing a bad up. example for but, all of but, us. But, you know, <laughs> people, we, you know, it is not as if the legacy of slavery ends just at the door of people who but the impact, but but the, but the impact of it and the impact directly on those who are descendants is clear. I mean, it's like saying all Jews suffer as a result of knowing about the Holocaust, but you would never compare those who were once uh, in the Holocaust, who were basically in those camps, to somebody whose grandmother was, and they kind of learned about it, and that, and that there was no impact economically on them. All right. Well, we're going to continue that conversation as the task force continues to meet, but Shirley Weber, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank us. you. Thank you for the invitation. You Look bet. forward to it. You bet. Take care. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers, Katie McMurrin, and our producers, Guy Marzarati. If you enjoyed this conversation, check out our first interview with uh, Dr. Weber in 2020. That's in our show notes. Uh, you can also sign up for that Chase of Boudin event at KQED at kqed.org slash live. And that should be a good one. I think I'll be there. And you <laughs> can be so. there as well. Hope to see you. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.